Today we continue our study of 2 Corinthians and today uh, looking particularly at the first 10 verses of chapter 12. Last week Cam spoke obviously from chapter 11 and uh, very eloquently described to us uh, Paul's concern about things that were going wrong with the Corinthian church and them being led astray by very, very boastful uh, imposters who had come in amongst them. And he spoke of uh, his own credentials, if you like, but in a way where he said he felt he was forced to boast about them uh, in order that they might listen to him. As we've studied First and Second Corinthians, I've been impressed at how much those two books reflect not just the life of the Corinthian church, but in many ways I think it would be true to say that it reflects the life of the church generally in the Western world. And in this also, uh, in this particular passage, I think we're influenced by the same things. We're swayed by great preachers. We're swayed by fleshly methods. We're swayed by people who appear to have charisma that can pull us along but very often without a great deal of depth. One of the ways we choose a minister these days seems to be much the same as anyone applying for any other job. An advertisement goes out, we apply, a potential pastor will uh, apply for the job and then puts in a resume, puts in uh, an application. If he's fortunate, he gets an interview, uh, and we go from there. Very much the way the world appoints people. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that. But it means that very often we can be swayed by someone who can put up a good story, Working in the job that I had years ago, we interviewed many people and very often we would interview people and and after the interview we would talk about the fact that they interviewed well, which meant they put up a good story. But then unfortunately when they started the job we found very often they didn't match up to what we had come to believe. And when Paul talks about these boastful leaders. He says to the church, I'm jealous over you because I don't want you to be led astray by them. They are false teachers. So he said, I feel constrained to boast about myself but boast of my weaknesses. He said, I was brought up a Hebrew, I was an Israelite, I was a minister of the gospel. I am a minister of the gospel, an apostle, but I don't glory in those things. And as Cam uh, spoke to us last week in chapter 11, he spoke of the fact that he was shipwrecked, he was in the water, uh, he was beaten many times, he was left for dead on one occasion and wherever he went he seemed to have trouble. And I had a bit of a smile to myself uh, thinking this week, thinking if he applied for a job as a pastor now and told us those things, he wouldn't even get an interview. People would say, well, he obviously came from the right background, he obviously had the right upbringing, he obviously was taught in the right schools, but it seems that everywhere he went he caused trouble. He's obviously accident prone. Paul said, I glory in my infirmities. Then he goes on to speak of his experiences of God and meeting with God. We take up our reading from chapter 12 and verses 1 to 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. 
And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to speak. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I could choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Before we look at that passage, I'd like us very briefly to look at something of the life of Paul that, to understand where he was coming from when he comes in to saying the things that he's saying here. All of them, or most of them, found in 2 Corinthians. <coughs> in chapter 1, you remember as we went through, Paul spoke of the fact that at one stage in his life things were so difficult, he was pressed so hard that he thought he was going to die. And he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Indeed in our hearts... We even despaired, he said, of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes on that verse because our particular translation here I think is, is quite a weak one. He says, It felt like we had a sentence of death. Things were so hard but it was far more deliberate than that. Other translations make it clearer, the authorised version being one of them, because there's a little word but in there. He says, we despaired of life, but we had on ourselves a sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. Paul says at that time things were difficult, we thought we were going to die but it didn't matter because we had already put a sentence of death on ourselves. We had come to a place in our life where we had said to God whether I live or die is not important to me. Whether I live or die is your business. Whether I live or die is up to you. We had a sentence of death on ourselves. The word that's actually used in the Greek is what's called a perfect indicative tense. The perfect tense means something happened and the effects of that happening continue now. So Paul said, we put a sentence of death on ourselves. We said to God, whether we live or die is your business, we're happy either way. And that continues. We didn't take it back. The indicative tense means that it was declared to be true. Paul said, this is true. And what gave him such power? Because then he said, because we had put ourselves to death, because we had sentenced ourselves to death, we no longer trusted in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. You know, Abraham knew that experience. And God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him up in the place that I will show you. He was testing Abraham. And Abraham took Isaac and was about to offer him on that sacrifice, as a sacrifice on that altar. 
Now that issue for Abraham was not a moral issue as it would be for us. Child sacrifice was quite a common thing in Abraham's day. He lived before the law was given. So child sacrifice was a fairly normal part of life in that area and in his life. But what was so important to Abraham was that in Isaac, every promise that God had made to him would be lost. He left his father's house. He'd travelled as a stranger. He tried to help God out by having Ishmael. And now God had given him Isaac. God had said, through him all the world will be blessed. Through him I make all these promises. In Abraham's heart there must have been that thought, how is it all going to be fulfilled now if Isaac is not here? Fortunately for us, the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews where the Holy Spirit writes a commentary on history tells us that the reason Abraham went ahead with that was that he believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Such was his faith. And Paul had that same knowledge, that same faith. We go on to chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. He says, We were hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Chapter 5 and verse 17. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, Sorry, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All has become new. 2 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. We are regarded, we are genuine but not regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing all things. In 1 Corinthians, as 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I die daily. The Lord Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Another perfect sense. I have been crucified with Christ. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so now he speaks to them about his ongoing boasting. Thanks. I must go on boasting, he says. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether it was in the body or or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking to the truth, speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul says... 14 years ago, I 
had a revelation of God. I was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven refers in Hebrew tradition to the place where God dwells. The first heaven was the sky. The second, the starry host, the universe. The third, the place of God's abode. He then goes on a little further to call it paradise, the place where Jesus said he would take the thief, the dying thief. A place which I believe is the same as Abraham's bosom mentioned in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. A place where the spirits of those who are in Christ go after their physical death as they wait the resurrection. Paul says, I was caught up there. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I'm not sure. But he says, I won't boast about that man or I won't boast about myself. I'll boast about that man. For that was a time when Somewhere in his ministry and 14 years before, it's hard to tell exactly where he was or what he was doing, obviously 14 years before he wrote this letter. He had this experience where he had met with God and God had changed his life and touched his life because of it. I want us to be very careful, very clear this morning of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about spiritual gifts. We're not talking about understanding spiritual gifts. They have their purpose, their place as a part of proclaiming the gospel given to aid the church to do our work. What we're talking about today is encounters with God. All of the men like Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Job, Isaiah, men and women of God of past ages. You read the history of the men whom God used amongst the Moravian brethren, amongst the setting up of the great missionary movement of the 19th century and the 20th century. Men like Hudson Taylor, Roland Bingham, Spurgeon, Muller, All of them came to a place where in their extremity they met with God and God changed their lives because of it. Some of the old preachers used to call such an experience a second blessing. I'm not sure that I agree with that. It would certainly be a blessing because all that we have is in Christ. But because we're human, we tend to foul things up. And when in our extremity we cry out to God, Lord, I want to be the very best that you want me to be, God very often graciously will open our eyes and our understanding to see him. And they may well be for different reasons. They may be for encouragement. They're always for encouragement. They may be the confirmation of some victory that God brings into our life. They may be for some special purpose. Isaiah said, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And I cried out, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king in all his glory. An angel came and cleansed him, took away his foul language and changed him. And I guess all of us at some stage or another would crave such an experience. But what is important is not the experience, but what we learn from that experience that will impart new life into us, that will cause us to walk in a different way because we have met with God. Our greatest need is to know God, to know his ways, Some are satisfied just simply to know his gifts and never rise above that level. I know I've quoted that verse in the Psalms many times where it says, 
that God made his ways known to Moses, his gifts to the children of Israel. Completely different level for Moses knew God's heart. The children of Israel saw his actions, they saw him doing miracles, but it never changed them. They still grumbled and complained at every opportunity. They still spoke out against Moses, against God. But God knew where to go. And Moses rather knew where to go when the difficulties came. He would go to his God who had met with him and made of him a new man. There was nothing wrong for us to say to God, show me your glory. With a yearning heart and a conscious mind that God might meet with us, that God might make us the people he wants us to be. He might bring us to the end of ourselves in order that he might have his total lordship in our life. Such experiences are not given to the curious or for the sake of the experience, but to those who have a deep longing for God. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. It's legitimate to ask, show me your glory. Not just so that I can have some great experience that will somehow make me feel better physically and exhilarate my soul, but that I might know you. As Paul says, I want to lay hold of all that for which the Lord Jesus has laid hold of me. If we do have such an experience, we need to care, be careful who we share it with because these experiences are deeply personal. I sense that very often when we have some new experience of God, our motive often is to let people over the know that we've just come up another spiritual notch. Or it may be that pride in our hearts would have us tell someone about it. But you see, we can share an experience like that with someone else and they wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about because God deals with us all as individuals. What God does in your life or what God does in my life is always personal. And always between him and us as his dear child, between us as his, and, our, and his betrothed, as Cameron spoke of last week, very often... I believe such experiences are no more to be shared with other people than they are than the intimacies of a husband and wife being shared with others. Because when we come to know God, he does that work of grace in our hearts that is specific for us. The way it will be known will be because we will be changed. We will be different people. He will make us new. Secondly, if we have such an experience, we, should, we shouldn't try and force anyone else into the same experience because some, God has something personal for them and it's often related to an area of life that God wants to cleanse and to release in each individual person. And if we have such an experience, then we shouldn't spend the rest of our life referring to it It's a tragedy to see a Christian person who is bumbling along, who speaks of some experience they had of God 40 years before and hasn't made a skerrick of difference, it would appear, to their current situation. We need to move on in the knowledge of what we've learned, not making a great thing of where we got our information from, but living in the reality of the truth that we have learned. And so Paul had such an experience. But then he says, because of that, 
in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of God to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's interesting here the language that Paul uses. In the, as he refers to this vision, he said, I'm not sure whether it was me or someone else. I'm not sure whether it was in my body or out of my body. I won't boast about myself, but I'll boast about that man that had this revelation. But now he says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And trials came to him in order to keep him in the right place, to keep him with a sentence of death upon himself, to keep him in a place where he trusted God with every detail of his life. First of all, he says this was a messenger of Satan. In actual fact, Satan was the messenger. And like Job, Satan couldn't touch Paul's life without God permitting it. It was part of the trial that he would prove and understand God's grace through this messenger of Satan related thorn. The word that's used for keeping me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, means to buffet, to to uh, slap with the fist. But it was all under God's control in order that Paul might be kept in a place where God could continue to use him. And he says, I asked for its removal three times. He obviously waited on God for a resolution of this problem, whatever it was. Specifically, he says, three times I asked of the Lord to remove this thorn. We don't know what the extent of his asking was. We don't know what the words that he used was. But 14 years before, he would have been fairly close in the beginning of his ministry. Maybe his prayer said, Lord, I need this thorn to be taken away so I can be a better minister of the gospel. Or I need this thorn to be taken away because it's a hindrance to the work that you've given me to do. We don't know. Nor do we know what the thorn particularly was. Some have suggested it was the trials that he went through as he spoke of previously. I don't hold to that thought because he'd already dealt with that. Whether it was physical or emotional or spiritual, we don't know. We do know that Paul had poor eyesight. In the book of Galatians, he speaks to them of their kindness in protecting him and in encouraging him and helping him in his physical infirmity and then goes and says, if it were possible, I know you would have torn your own eyes out and given them to me. It was apparent that he had weak eyesight. No doubt something that hung over his life from that Damascus encounter when he was struck blind, when his his, uh, sight was restored. He wouldn't be the first man who had a physical difficulty as a result of meeting with God. The Bible tells us that Jacob, when he met with God at Peniel, limped on his thigh for the rest of his life. But whatever it was, he said, I asked God three times to take it away. But God's answer came back to me and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said to him, In this thing, trust me. 
in this thing I want to teach you. In this thing, whatever it is, I want you to know that I am with you and that my power will be made evident through your weakness. Paul was introduced to the ministry of suffering. It's not something we hear about much these days. And in the economy of God, he allows suffering amongst his people. What for? In order that in our weakness, his strength might be made perfect. Let my grace, he says, suffice you. There are a couple of verses in Hebrews that I still can't get my head around. It says, It was fitting for him, that is Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who was tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. How does the eternal Son of God become obedient through suffering? The one who called the world into being. The one who we're told by whom all the world hangs together, the sustainer of creation. And yet when he became a man and was truly flesh, who was truly blood, was truly human, he learned obedience to the Father by the things that he suffered. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to weep at the tomb of a friend. And he knew what it was to understand and to suffer the judgment of hell as he hung on that cross and his father's face was turned from him. So he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul says, I want you to learn, Paul. Uh, Jesus said to Paul, I want you to learn that you are my sufficiency and that out of your weakness and in your weakness, my strength will be revealed. And then he goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. He sums up his argument of boasting. I'm happy to boast in my weaknesses. Therefore he says, I will boast all the more gladly in them so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I will glory in my infirmities, he says, because then I will know the power of God. One of the paradoxes of the Christian life is that God calls us to serve him with our whole heart with all our strength, with all our physical and mental abilities and yet acknowledging that we can only do that by trusting him and that we can't do anything without him because very often our physical and mental desires get in the way because we try to do it in our own strength. What about our thorn in the flesh? Is there something in your life today that's giving you a hard time? Maybe some physical ailment? Maybe some deep emotional experience? It may be to do with relationships? 
It may be some longing of your heart to, for God to do something for you and in you. How do we deal with those things? There are two ways we can deal with them. We can let them overcome us. We can spend all our time thinking about them. We can think all that, take all our time praying about them. We can get other people to pray for us about them and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Or we can come to God and say, let your name be hallowed in this thing. Let your kingdom come in my life in this thing. Let your will be done in my life just as it is in heaven. I fear that very often our praying and our desire to escape some of these things comes from fear within us. Fear of dying, fear of pain, fear of inconvenience, fear of not getting our own way. God's love is not made perfect because of our fear. But when we come and we submit it to him, then we discover that he sets us free. There are many instances told of people who came to the end of themselves when they came to God and said, I can't do this anymore, I hand it over to you. Whatever this problem is, I leave it in your hands. Whether you fix it or not is, for me, is your business, not mine. I give the story of Catherine Marshall, the, man who wrote, uh, the lady who wrote the book, a man called Peter, some years ago, the story of Peter Marshall, the chaplain of the American Senate. After he died, she was struck with cancer and went to, in her own words, almost every healing meeting that she could find. In her anxiety, in her sense of frustration, a sense of worry, nothing happened. There came a night when she was laying in her bed She simply lifted her heart to God and said, Lord, whether you heal me or not is is your business. I have no preference in the matter. I leave it in your hands. And God healed her. Cancer was taken away. She lived for many more years to come afterwards. Now, we don't come to God and commit our life to him with that motive. In her heart it was a genuine cry from the very depths of her heart and God heard her cry. So what is the secret of knowing in our lives day by day that God's power is made perfect in our weakness? It's where we began today looking at what Paul's experience was in his relationship to God. We're so conditioned in our world that everything hinges around life in this world. The Lord Jesus specifically said, don't lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break in and steal. But put your treasure in heaven where none of those things are there. And we're conditioned by our own self, we're conditioned by the world in which we live to believe that somehow we have to have all of God's blessings (coughs) fulfilled in us now while we're still living in an unregenerated body. The day will come when we'll have a new body as we thought of some time ago, a new resurrection body when we will be perfect physically as well and mentally and spiritually as well as spiritually. But in the meantime, God wants us to learn of him through the ministry of suffering. We need to come to a place where we say to God, Lord, whether I live or die is your business. I simply want you to be glorified through my life in a maximum way that's possible. 
I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done through my life as it is in heaven. And whether that can be best accomplished by my living or my dying is your business. I have no, I have no preference in the matter. Your glory is all that matters. Leave the choices to God. The Lord Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. God wants to take each of us to that place where old self is not only known to us in our minds because we've read it somewhere in the Bible, but we know it's true in practice in our lives. A.W. Tozer in one of his books says there's all the difference in the world between knowing it is written and it is written again on the fleshy tablets of our heart where our head knowledge becomes heart knowledge where the word of God becomes our daily experience and we ask God to bring us to that place of death to ourselves in order that his power might be revealed through our weakness but we must leave the choice to him very often we try and work out how we think we will serve God how we can best do things for God but if it's left to us to put ourselves on a cross we'll always do it in some way that will bring self glory we can't help it but when we come to God and say Lord you put me there you work the circumstances of my life to bring me to the end of myself daily and then I will know your power. Let me tell you a few things about a person on a cross. Understanding that the cross is described to us in 1 Corinthians 1 as both the power and the wisdom of God. All of God's power, all of God's wisdom is concentrated at Calvary. And all that happened subsequently in resurrection. But you can't get resurrected until you've died. A person on a cross can only look in one direction. They're facing death. But for a Christian, it means that we can face death to ourselves knowing that the Lord Jesus is there and gone before us. The person on a cross is totally under the control of the ones putting him there. And when we're prepared to submit to the Lordship of Christ, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, we know that we can rest our souls, we can rest our lives in the hands of a gracious, loving, tender, compassionate God. One who's patient. And the person on the cross has no future plans of their own. They've made a deal with God. From now on, you run my life. You are Lord of my life. I want you to be in total control. But there are benefits. You see, a dead person has no anxiety. For anxiety springs usually from self-reliance. There are two ways we can overcome or try and overcome anxiety. We can go through the mental gymnastics that you can read about in almost any self-help magazine that will tell you how to cope with anxiety or to live in a situation where there is no anxiety. And the Lord Jesus said, don't be anxious about what you will eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. Don't be over-anxious about tomorrow because sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The Lord Jesus was the most less anxious person that's ever walked this globe. Why? Because he trusted his Father implicitly. The Apostle Paul said to one of the, to, in one of his epistles, I would have you to be without anxiety. 
One of the things that impresses me when I read Paul's history of what he did and said in those books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, after he'd come to that place where he said we have a sentence of death on ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in him who raises us from the dead, there was no more anxiety. You read through the things that happened to him. We were pushed, we were, stra- we, were, uh, we were given a hard time, we had all these things going wrong, but there's not a mention of anxiety there. We were not perplexed, he says. But he trusted God in them. The person who knows what it is to have been on the cross with Christ has no anxiety because there is a total and complete rest in his risen Lord or her risen Lord. The person who is dead has no fear. The perfect fear has torment. But when we know what it is to have passed the sentence of death upon ourselves, we understand that perfect love casts out fear. A person on a cross has rest. When Hebrews 4, 4 says, there remains a Sabbath rest to the people of God to the one who has ceased from his own works as God did from his. In Jesus' day, when he began to talk this way, many of the disciples, we're told, left him and went away. When he began to say to them, you need to eat my body and drink my blood, You need to identify with me on what will become a cross. They walked away. They were happy to see the miracles. They were happy to be fed the bread. They were happy to see the healings and the demonics healed. But when it became personal and when he started talking to them about dying to themselves, they went away. And it would be quite likely that a short time later, some of them would have been in the crowd calling for his blood, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus said to the inner circle, will you also go away? Peter said, where can we go? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They got it. They understood it. (coughs) They knew what it was that they may have to well suffer with him. But that wasn't important to them because they knew that in, in him there would be no anxiety, no fear. There would be only rest. And all his promises are based on this kind of a relationship. To know everything that Jesus promised in his word to be true, you have to take up your cross daily and follow him. There is no other way. There is no other way. And it's always been the same. And it will always be the same. We're living in days here in our nation, in the Western world, where I believe that we will begin to see testings as has happened in many other nations. And there is a need for those who follow Christ to be fair dinkum in their religion. To come to God and say whether I live or die is is your business and I want your name to be glorified. Give me the grace to be what you want me to be. And he will meet with you. He will bless you. God knows an honest heart. And God will reward an honest heart. And if our intention is that he be glorified, he will lead us in his own way, in his own time, to a place where we understand what it is to rest totally and completely in him. We're going to close our service in a moment. We're going to do it a little differently today. We're not going to sing anymore. But we are just going to spend a couple of minutes in complete silence.
as we allow God to speak to us as we come before him and tell him what's on our hearts. Maybe you have some pressing issue in your life today. You've talked around the subject with God. You've tried to to get God to, to shift it out. Maybe today you need to say to him, Lord, I submit this thing to you. I want your will to be done. Or you're wrestling with some issue with your relationships or your health or whatever. Taking the time to be totally honest with God. We often pray somehow as we say the words that we think God wants us to hear. And what God wants to hear is the truth. He wants to hear the honesty of our hearts. We need to cut through all the the words that we usually use and say to God, Lord, you know how things are. This is how it is. I failed you in this. I'm struggling with that. I'm finding difficulty here. Father, will you please meet with me and deliver me? That out of my weakness, your victory might come. Your strength will come. So I would ask that for just two minutes, we have perfect silence. As each one brings our needs to him, And then you may well need to continue to continue that conversation when you get home as you wait on God with a new sense of liberty and a new sense of of openness to him. If after the service you feel you need to talk to another Christian, to an elder or to a more mature Christian, then by all means take that opportunity. Shall we spend time in his presence? And then I'll close with a benediction. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on Thee. Hushed our hearts to listen in expectancy.